0: First Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse one, says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Isn't not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When our kids were little, we went through a parenting class called Growing Kids God's Way. I'd say the first thing that we learned is that if we were going to discipline our children, that we were first going to have to discipline ourselves. We were going to have to have the self-discipline to be able to make ourselves be for our children what they needed us to be when they needed it, not when we felt like doing it. And we began to do that, and we noticed that it made a difference in us, and it made a profound difference in our children as well. Now, disciplining children is not the funnest part of parenting, is it? Nobody has kids thinking, you know what, someday I'm going to have to paddle their little hind end. Or someday I'm gonna to have to ground them, or someday I'm gonna to have to take this toy away, or some, that is not the reason we have kids. But every parent knows that if you're gonna be a benefit to your child, you gotta do those things. If your child is gonna have the best shot at a successful and a happy life, it's gonna come through discipline that you bring into their life. Every parent has to recognize that my child's momentary happiness might have to give way For a greater happiness that lies beyond the moment. And so that's why we do it. That's what God is talking about here, but He's not talking about just your family and my family. He's talking about us. He's talking about His family. And He's talking about the discipline that God wants over His children, over His family within the church. We are not going to be the church that we need to be without discipline. And in us as individuals, as individual Christians as believers within the church, we're not going to be what we need to be without the discipline of the church watching over us and holding us accountable. In Hebrews chapter 12, he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you don't receive the discipline of the Heavenly Father, then you're not His children. We don't discipline other people's children, but we do discipline ours. And that's exactly what he's saying there in Hebrews, is that if you don't find yourself under the discipline of God, then you're not his child, because God emphatically disciplines his children. Now, within the context of the book of Hebrews, it's talking about a little bit different context than Corinthians. See, in Hebrews, he's saying, look, God allows hard things to come into your life, to train you, to build you up. To give you strength, kind of like a coach does with exercises that strengthen you so that when you get in the challenge of the game, you have what you need to address it. Kind of like a teacher does, giving you homework to prepare you for the test so that you can have that knowledge for whatever you are got to do with it later. Kind of like a parent does. We watch our kids. We allow them to do things on their own to strengthen them, but be there to catch them. And so that's kind of the context of Hebrews. That God is going to allow that kind of discipline, that kind of training in your life to strengthen you for the challenges ahead. But it's also discipline when we look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and He says, you know what, when my kids step out of line, I'm going to come down on them. When my kids step out of line, I'm going to correct them and get them to do it right. You see, the discipline of children, why do we do it? Because... It will lead to their benefit, to their best shot at happiness, prosperity. God does the same thing. You know, a while back, I had the opportunity to sit down with somebody that was, that was going the wrong direction. And I just asked them a couple questions. Do you know, do you know God? Have you put your faith in Christ? Yes, was the answer. I said to him, does he know you? What? <laughs> That's kind of the answer. Does he, does he know you? I mean, do you think he knows you? We'd have to say, yes, He knows you, right? Because He created you. So He created you. So He knows you. Okay, so does He Does he love you? Yes, He loves me. How do we know that He loves you? Well, He gave His own Son to die on the cross for you so that you could have eternal life in Him. So we know that He loves you. Let's put this all together. God knows me because He created me. God loves me because He died for me. Now, would you agree with this statement? My best shot at happiness and satisfaction in life, is in God's will. I mean, isn't that just simple logic? Actually, it's the logic that Eve blew and Adam blew back in the Garden of Eden. But that's just simple logic. If God made me, He knows me. If He died for me, He loves me. That means that the best shot I have at a satisfying and a happy life is found within the will of God. But you know what? Sometimes our minds get going other places. The enticements of Satan and the, the things that the world has to offer start to lead us down different paths and we bite. And you know what? That's exactly when we need the discipline of God, where He comes in and says, You're going the wrong direction and you need to turn around. But here's the deal the way that He's chosen to do it is through the church, He uses us to hold each other accountable. He uses us to bring about the corrections that we need in each other's lives to get us going the right direction, to keep us going the right direction. And so God, as a loving Father, put this principle into place within the church to take care of His family. That's why it tells us in the book of Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He's calling the church. In fact, when you read through 1 Corinthians 5, notice who it's addressed to. It's not addressed to the guy that sinned. The guy that sinned is involved in a horrible sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, I can't believe it. Even the pagans don't do this. But he's not talking to him. Who Who is he talking to in the passage? He's talking to everybody else in the church. And he's saying, look, you as a church... You as the body of Christ, you as the the brothers and sisters in Christ of this person, you're just letting them follow that wrong path for their life. Though you know that it heads to ruin and unhappiness. You're letting them go down that path. Why, Why would you let them go down that? Don't you care about them? You see, that's the thing. As parents, we know that if we love our kids, discipline is necessary the most unloving thing that we could do is not discipline our kids. Well, that's, that's what the Apostle Paul is writing to these people in the Corinthian church. And he's saying, where's your care? Where's your concern for these people? We see that also in, in the letters of the churches in the book of Revelation. And notice what he says to the church at Thyatira. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Boy, that sounds really great so far, right? I mean, I have quality things. Love, faith, service, patient endurance, and that they've been growing in those things. says your latter works are more than the first. But then notice what it says. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. And so he starts out with this church saying, man, you guys have grown in faith and love and service, patient endurance. But I got a major problem with you. And what was the major problem? The major problem was that they were tolerating sin within the church. They were just overlooking it. It's the same thing that was going on in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was, was tolerating this sin that he said even the pagans, and if you look it up in history, it's absolutely right. The pagans didn't even go along with this. When you look back, Cicero and some of the other historians, they point out that incest within Roman law was strictly forbidden. So even Rome in all its licentiousness was not tolerating what this church was tolerating within the church. And so he's calling them to account for it and commanding them to be involved in this exercise of church discipline. Well, as we look at it through this passage this morning, we're going to see four different aspects of church discipline that he spells out for them in the passage so that we can better understand it. The first aspect that we see of church discipline is the mindset. Notice there, in their mindset, should have been mourning. Verse 2, it says, And you are arrogant. Aren't you not rather to mourn? You should be mourning. You should be sorrowful. This is verse 6, it says, Your boasting is not good. Boasting, you're boasting. And the boasting is tied to this situation that's going on there. Your heart should be broken over the sin that's in this believer's life. And he doesn't even say he's, well, he's probably not a believer which was actually a possibility with this going on. But he's saying if he says he's a believer, we're going to treat him like a believer and we're going to hold him accountable. And as it turns out, from what you can see in 2 Corinthians, it looks like the guy was a genuine believer because he did end up repenting and coming around, apparently. But when you look at this situation, he's saying, look, your heart should be broken over the sin in this person's life, but instead you are boasting about it. I remember thinking, what in the world would they be boasting about? And I think it's probably this. They're probably boasting in the grace of God, not recognizing, like as Titus said, that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. But they're saying, you know what? We can be so graceful that we can tolerate that. We can put up with that sin. We, can, we Look at this guy. We welcome him in, even though he's doing these things. We just welcome him. They were taking pride in their tolerance for sin. Well, not too far from American society, is it? Isn't tolerance the chief character trait of the new American ethic? That's what's severely pushed. Here God is bringing them into judgment for their tolerance. God, through the Apostle Paul, is writing to this church in Corinth and demanding that they stop tolerating this sin within the church. The Apostle Paul highlights that again in 2 Corinthians when he writes back to them again. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you And I may not have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. That should be our response. When we see people engaged in lifestyles that go against what the principles of God's Word are, we can't be excited about that. we got to sorrow over that. But you know what? Even within our churches, we're getting to the point where we're, we get sucked in. I've seen Christians encourage people, or, oh, that's so nice, oh, that's, and it's describing something that was totally outside of the will of God. We got to maintain the right mindset. It's totally upstream in our culture. You see, our culture is racing fast to try to get rid of the stigma that goes with anything immoral. Right? We've been doing it for decades. A lot of it in the name of having a healthy self-esteem. We don't want, to feel them, want them feeling bad. So whatever it is that they're doing that's wrong, that makes them feel bad, we'll just say it's not bad anymore. Then they don't have to feel bad and they'll have this healthy self-esteem. Uh, how about you do the right thing if you want a right self-esteem, a good self-esteem. That'll actually work. This other thing doesn't work because everybody knows it's still wrong Anyway. But our culture is running fast to say, oh no, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. We're going to tolerate this, tolerate that, tolerate that, tolerate everything except for intolerance. That's what we're going to tolerate, but then we're intolerant of intolerance. So, you see, there's no way to be consistently tolerant. It comes down to a line. You have to pick what things you're going to tolerate and not tolerate, and God has already done that for us within His Word. Our society is moving to try to get rid of the stigma for every immoral action and we can't go there it's damaging to people it's destructive in their lives it has eternal consequences sending them to hell we can't go there the stigma is very necessary without the stigma christians will follow their flesh without the stigma lost people will never come to christ because they don't see anything to repent of the Apostle Paul is definitely not trying to remove the stigma here. He's trying to enhance it, if anything else. And you know what the Bible tells us in Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, he says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, those, there are those people out there that are just going to be so happy for everything that you ever do, whether it's right or wrong. Oh, you deserve that. Oh, you. It's empty. And then there's the people that are going to care about you enough to correct you. And that's the people God is commanding us to be as a local church. We need to have the right mindset. He said you need to mourn over this sin. They weren't mourning. They were arrogant. And you know what really boils down to it? That's what sin is. Sin is the manifestation of arrogance within our life on every level. Because what are you doing when you sin? You're saying, I'm going a different way than God has laid out for me. They're saying, I don't care how you created the world to operate. I don't care what your plan for my life is. I want to follow this lust that I have. And so you're going your own way. That is complete arrogance. Well, this guy, same thing. All kinds of commands back in the Old Testament about Incest and about marital relations and about sexual relations, all that kind of stuff, and this guy's totally violating him. Well, what could you call that other than arrogance? But you notice he's not even calling that guy arrogant right now. He's calling the church arrogant. Well, what is the church doing that's so arrogant? They're tolerating it. They're saying, God, I don't care what your standards are. We don't feel like having this discussion with this guy. We don't feel like kicking him out. We don't want that awkward conversation. And God says, you're arrogant, you're going your way, you're operating by your own feelings, your own thoughts. You're not following my commands and my standards. So we've got to have the right mindset. We've got to be humbly following the precepts of God, not arrogantly going our own way. Sin needs to bring tears to our eyes, not smiles to our faces. Well, then the second aspect that we see is the process. He basically just tells them, kick them out. Expel them. Now, if you look down at verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual moral of this world. And he goes on from there. But what I want you to gain from verse 9 is that this is not new. The Apostle Paul had already written them a previous letter about disciplining people in the church that were involved in sin. So he'd already written them a previous letter and they still haven't done it. So now when he writes them, he tells them, look, kick that guy out. It's time to act. Time for patience is over. Kick him out. Now, the hopes in all this is to bring him back. Always. Well, around the New Testament, he gives us further instruction of this along the same lines. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he wrote to that church. He said, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, though, but warn him as a brother. Here's that stigma again. There needs to be shame over wrong actions. God has given that to us as a protectant. Right? Why do you feel pain when you touch something hot? Why did God build you that way? So that you pull back. So that you don't get damaged from it. It's the same way with shame inside of us. When we do something wrong and we feel that guilt, we feel that shame, it's so you quit it because this will destroy you. Matthew chapter 18. He tells you, look, if somebody sins, then the one person that's probably going to be close to that person is going to know about that sin. You know what? That person needs to go to them and say, hey, you know what? Have you thought about this? You're kind of going the wrong way here. I'm, I'm worried about you. And you know what? He says if that fixes it, Fine, it goes no farther. But if that doesn't fix it, then you need to go with two or more people to go before that person and say, look, you're really going the wrong way here. You need to get back on track. And if that fixes it, good. stops right there. If it doesn't fix it, then he says it needs to be brought before the church. And the church needs to set that person outside of the church if they refuse to listen even to the whole, even to the church. So Matthew gives a much more detailed So here's step one, here's step two, here's step three. I think when we read the book of 1 Corinthians, we're coming in at step three, right? Because he's already had a whole other letter that's addressed the issue. It's obvious uh, people that he's he's dealt with before. And now he's just saying, look, that time's over. Uh, It's time to kick them out. This is getting too carried away. You see, the goal isn't really to kick people out. It's actually to bring them in. The goal is to have them, not to lose them. Well, these people, thankfully, it looks like we're obedient to what they were supposed to do, because in Second Corinthians in chapter two, it looks like we find the conclusion of the matter. He says in verses six through eleven, he says, "For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough." In this process, in the passage that we are reading through, he says, "When you assemble in verse four, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan." That's what he's referring to in Second Corinthians. Chapter 2, and verse 6, he says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. He told them in 1 Corinthians, When you're assembled, deliver that person. Well, how would they do that? They would do that by a majority. They would vote and vote to hand that person over to set them outside the church, to excommunicate them, to discipline them. And so he says, Now that, that punishment that was inflicted by the majority, by that majority vote this took place, is enough so that you should rather turn and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So you see, it appears that what the conclusion of the matter is is that they... Obeyed after receiving the letter that we're studying today. They kicked that person out of the church. That person felt this shame and repented and asked to be forgiven. I would have to say that in our culture, churches are pretty soft on this. And I just wonder how many people's lives have further gone downhill into destruction because the church didn't have the courage to step up when it needed to step up. So there's a process that's involved here. Another aspect that we need to look at is the reasons. What are the reasons for it? Well, obviously one of the reasons is that person that we talked about. One of the reasons is to stop the spread. It's kind of a statement we're familiar with these days for a different reason. But here's something far more deadly than COVID, by the way. He says it's like yeast. A little yeast, you put it in a bread dough just a little bit, and what does it do? It goes through the whole dough and makes it rise and puff up. He says a little yeast leavens the whole lump. It is going to affect everybody. And that's what sin does in the church. Sin, if it's not dealt with, if it's not corrected, if, it, if that stigma doesn't stay in place, then it grows. Other people are like, oh, apparently this isn't such a big deal. I see this. This is going on in their life and nobody's really saying or doing anything about it, so it must not be as big a deal as I thought it was. So they drop their guard. It's what we've been seeing happen in our culture and in church culture, right alongside with American culture for the last 50 years. Easy. The more sin becomes accepted within the broader community, the more sin we have, the more sin gets participated in. Alexander Pope wrote this, Vice is a monster, oh so frightful mean, as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Vice, sin, evil, is a monster that's frightfully mean. All we have to do to experience the ugliness of sin is just to see it makes you hate it. Things that are corrupt, wicked, sinful, to to see them just repulses you. It makes you hate it. But that's not the end of the story, unfortunately. Because it goes on to say, yet seen too often, we become familiar with it. Familiar with her face, we first endure it, then pity, then we embrace. That is just so true. If you're not around in an environment, never find yourself in an environment where people swear a lot. And then you're confronted with somebody that does. It shocks you. But you know what, if you stay in an environment where people swear a lot, pretty soon, just like the poem says at first, you, you endure it. You put up with it because what are you going to do? Are you going to correct them every time? After that, the next step is that you, you pity it. You feel bad for the people that are stuck talking that way because it's really beneath them to really use that kind of language. Language, you think of the F word and the way that it's used, it's used for everything, which means it means nothing. And so it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. And so then you, then you pity them. I feel sorry for them. Finally, you embrace it. People end up using it themselves. And that's just what happens within society. And that's what he's warning the church of. He's saying, look, if the church doesn't discipline sin, then the church will be full of sin. It'll just be like yeast through the bread dough. And we can't have that. Secondly, it says, show your salvation. He he deals with the Passover feast. In the Passover feast, when Israel was delivered from Egypt, they had to kill the Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, And then they had to go inside the house and they had to sweep up every little corner of the house, clean the house. And what they were sweeping for was yeast, (laughs) a symbol of sin. They were to get all the yeast outside of the house, no yeast in the house. And they were to eat unleavened bread and this lamb that they sacrificed for for their protection. He looks back at that and he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, but with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Passover, the blood of that lamb, just pointed ahead to Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. Christ is our Passover. Because of His sacrifice, we have life. He tells them, participate in this not with the leavened bread, but participate with the unleavened. And I love the little statement, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You see, he's pointing to their salvation. And he's saying, look, you are forgiven. You are unleavened. What would unleavened mean? If leaven represents sin, then unleavened would represent being without sin. He's saying you are unleavened in Christ. You put your faith in Christ. He is our Passover lamb. It's His blood that paid for your sins. You are forgiven if you've trusted in Him. So now, live like it. If you're without sin in your life because of Christ, then live without sin in your life in your daily habits. Well then, finally, the last aspect of church discipline in this passage is the sphere. In other words, who are we talking about here? I'm not telling you to not associate with the people of this world that are sinning. You know, I never back away from somebody uh, that's using foul language or talking about bad things or whatever that's a non-Christian in a, in a relationship. I try to enhance my relationship with those people. Hopefully to bring them to Christ at some point. And that's what he tells them. He says, look, if, if, if a child of the world is acting like the world, then what do you expect? Don't separate from them. Then you'd have to come out of the whole world. And you can't do that. It's impossible. Reach those people. But if anybody, and we take them at their own word, if anybody calls themselves a brother, in other words, they say, "They say I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to live like one. That person you need to hold accountable. Now, why Why that? This person might be behaving much worse over here that's an unbeliever, but I still have something to do with them, but I don't have something to do with this person. That Well, you know what? That person over there didn't sign up for this, but this one did. God's telling us to judge His kids, not somebody else's. Paul says, God will judge the world. God lets us judge one another. Why? So that we don't face the judgment of God. If we and within the church can correct ourselves and keep ourselves on the right path, then we don't have to get outside the protection of the church where God will deal with us more harshly or give us over to Satan where he will have his way with us and really wreak havoc. And so church discipline is a thing that is put in place for us, and it's not pleasant. I hate it every time. Every time I'm I have to go into it and deal with somebody, I pour back over the scriptures dealing with whatever they're dealing with. Then I get before God and I spend time begging him. <laughs> to work in this situation. Because it always can go one or two ways. It can either get really ugly or it can go really good. And when it goes really good, when people repent and get their life back within the will of God and blessing, and boy, that's just an awesome, awesome thing. But it can get pretty ugly if uh, they decide that you're judging them, and which, you know, we kind of are. But you know what? Let's end with that. The one Bible verse that the world does know is judge not lest ye be judged. It's in a completely different context. Here the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to judge one another. See the context in Jesus' time that those people were looking down on people, not wanting to fix anything and help them up, but just casting down on them. They were judgmental. The context of the Apostle Paul is, is trying to help somebody up out of the mud. And that requires judgment. You know, the Bible also says like in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that he that is the spiritual judges all things. The passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says judge not, not lest you be judged. Just a few verses later he says do not cast your pearl before swine. Which requires you to make a judgment on somebody. This whole idea of judgment we need to get away from a little bit. This That uh, any kind of judgment is wrong. God himself is a judge. Context is the key. And God has called us within the context of the local church. To judge one another in a compassionate, merciful, and helpful way. That we might have the best that God has for us.